again, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. So we look at the second miracle at Canaan in the hill country of central Galilee. There was a small village called Cana. It's a small, insignificant town. It was named after the marsh reeds which grew there uh, close by. And well off the main highways, it was merely kind of a backwoods town, a third-class province out of the outer fringes of the Roman Empire. And uh, it was here that Jesus would perform his first uh, miracle. It had taken place during a wedding feast in the midst of the celebrations. The host had run out of wine. When Jesus had heard of the situation, he went to the household servants, instructed them to fill six water pots to the brim with water. He then told them to take a cup of water to the head waiter for him to taste. And the head waiter had tasted it, not realizing the source. He exclaimed that it was the best wine served during the entire celebration. Now, when we talked about this a number of weeks ago, we mentioned that Jesus did not turn the water into alcoholic beverage. He turned it into uh, fresh grape juice. Now, uh, that's uh, uh, very evident by what the Bible tells us about wine and about the use of it in Bible times or the uh, warnings against the use of alcoholic wine. But here, we're not going to dwell upon that particular uh, miracle other than to say that this was going to be the same place where Jesus performs his second miracle. There's actually seven miracles given in the book of John, and this is the second one. Almost every, uh, almost a year had passed since that event, and once again, Jesus is here in this little village. It's alive with news. By now, the gossip of the servants had spread the story of the first miracle to every house uh, for miles around, but that's not all. Many of the Jews living in Galilee had traveled to Jerusalem in the year to attend various feasts, and uh, they had seen signs and miracles that Jesus had been performing there, and the ministry uh, of uh, this young Jewish prophet was growing. He finally comes back to Canaan, and this is the scene, uh, had been the scene of his first miracle. It's also the scene of the second. There are a couple of comparisons there. The first miracle performed in a setting of joy and rejoicing. Uh, the second miracle is in a setting of mourning and sorrow. Uh, the first miracle brought wine from water. The second miracle is going to uh, bring health to the dying. Uh, the first miracle is a miracle of creation. And the second miracle is a miracle of healing. But the result of each miracle is going to be the same. Belief will be produced in the hearts of those who see it. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this particular miracle. And we notice, first of all, the return uh, to Galilee. This is in verses 43 through 45. Verses 43 through 45. Now, in our last several messages in this uh, particular study... Uh, uh, we examined the incident in uh, Sychar, uh, the woman at the well. We saw there how by one woman's testimony, an entire town came to know Christ. It marked the official close of his early ministry, that is the early ministry of Jesus. And yet these events are recorded in John chapter 43 and verse 54, will be seen to be more related to the events 
of the year passed than the Galilean ministry uh, that was about to begin. So I want to suggest this morning, first of all, that we take this second incident at Canaan as kind of a transition. Uh, It brings us from the first year into the second year of Jesus' ministry. Now the reason for the return of Jesus is given in verse Verses 43 and 44, it says, Now after two days he departed thence, and he went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Uh, This verse presents us an interesting problem. It tells us that the reason Jesus now returns to Galilee is because a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, It is Jesus' own country of Galilee. Now, the, prophet, uh, the proverb of a prophet having no honor in his own country is repeated in all three of the synoptic gospels. And in each case, I think it's very clear from the con- contest that his own country is a reference to Galilee, specifically Nazareth. Uh, and we find that in the other three uh, gospels. But if this is the case, then why is he... Uh, is his purpose in returning to Galilee at the time based on the truth that a prophet hath no honor in his own country? I think the answer is found in verse 45. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Jesus comes to Galilee only after he had first uh, been recognized and kind of won some acclaim in Judea. But notice that verse 45 goes on to state that the reason Jesus was received in Galilee was that the Galileans uh, had first seen his signs in Jerusalem. But that isn't all. We must also realize that the reason Jesus had first departed from Judea was because of the growing popularity in Judea and the growing resentment of the Pharisees. Now that's clearly seen in the first three verses of this chapter. But it was not a part of the plan of Jesus to come into open conflict with the Pharisees of Judea at this time. As he said on a number of occasions, he says, his hour had not come. You see, uh, we could look at it this way. The incident in Sychar, the woman at the well, is kind of a parenthesis, an interlude. If you go back to verse uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 1, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and then verse 3, he left Judea and departed unto again into Galilee, and then it was on his way back to Galilee that he went through Samaria uh, and was confronted, confronted the Samaritan woman there. But then we go to verse 44, the end of the parentheses, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet had no honor in his own country. And so although there will eventually be a reception among the Galileans, it will not bring about the immediate confrontation that will later occur when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. And I think this is a point here that I don't want us to miss. God is in control of what happens. You hear me? God is in control of what happens. You look around today and you think, oh, this world is coming apart at the seams. Listen, God is still in control. God, Jesus is God, right? And so it is Jesus controlling the date of his future crucifixion. 
Events are happening so fast, and he took deliberate steps, I think, to even slow them down. And so when the proper time comes, these circumstances will be reversed to bring about the desired process. And this is the principle here, and it's a very important principle. The death of Jesus was planned by Jesus. You look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and verse 28. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. You see, the death of Jesus was planned by Jesus. It was no accident. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, He sent him for a reason, right? He sent him to die. He sent him to die for your sin, for my sin. It was ordained in eternity past. It was carried to pass exactly the way which it was planned. And so we see here the return to Canaan. Now, secondly, we see the request of the nobleman. It goes on here to talk about this second miracle, verses 46 and 47. Jesus carries back to Galilee. Uh, he directs his steps to that little town of Canaan. Uh, this was the home of Nathaniel. We'll read later in John 21. It's also been the scenic of uh, the scene of his first miracle. Perhaps it's because of this that a man now carries and asks for a second miracle to be uh, presented. And so we find here in verse 46... And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So we see a certain nobleman. We're introduced to a new character here. Uh, his name is not given. But I always am interested in finding these, this word certain in the Bible, in, especially in the New Testament. It was a certain. That means it was somebody. It wasn't a fictitious name or a person. It wasn't, this isn't just a story. It's not just a myth. It's a certain nobleman. His name really isn't that important to us. What happens is important. His name is not given. He's only called a nobleman. That's the same term used in the writings of Josephus, the historian, to describe the officers in service of Herod Antipas and the Tetrarch of uh, Galilee. And this would be indicate that he was a royal official. He was someone important in the government. Uh, this is the third individual that we've seen coming and interacting with Jesus. There's an interesting contrast that has developed here. You can see it by the chart I've given to you here. Nicodemus, he was a Jew. He was high society. He was a leader of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He came to question Jesus, and his questions were answered. And then there's a Samaritan woman. Of course, a Samaritan woman, uh, uh, two things, two strikes against her as far as the Jews were concerned. First of all, she was a Samaritan. Second, she was a woman. Uh, and uh, that was not something that people did or that the, the Jew would do, would be talk to a Samaritan or a, a Samaritan woman. She was an outcast from her society. She was an immoral woman. She came to draw water, and she went away with the water of life. The third person now that we find here in John is a certain nobleman. He's a Galilean. He's held in high esteem uh, by the Romans. He's a Roman official. He came to have his son healed. His son was healed, as well as his entire family believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so they all came for different reasons, but they all came to Jesus. All three had their needs met by Jesus. And so, secondly, we notice not only a certain nobleman, but a man in need. In verse 47, it says in verse 47 in the first part of it, And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Galilee into, or out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. Now, here's the setting. The man's home is in the city of Capernaum on the shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And a tragic shadow had come over his household. His son, his beloved son, is sick to the point of death. And we would all say that is a tragic thing, to have one of your children be so sick that they're almost to die. We would all feel for this man. The man had tried everything, but had not been successful, and he had lost all hope. And then one day he hears the news that Jesus, a miracle worker, a healer, was drawn so many people into the territory of Judea. He's now coming back to Galilee and his only hope would be for Jesus. He finds Jesus is staying in Canaan. Now this man sets out for Canaan. It's a trip about 16 miles from his home. Uh, He does not send a servant Although he was a man who had many servants, he could have sent someone uh, to find Jesus, but he goes himself. And he can only hope that he'll not be too late. He's a man in need. But notice his frantic request. Verse 47 again, in the last part where it says, He besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. As we examine this man's request, we can see that he had two misconceptions about Jesus. Number one is that he thought that if Jesus were to heal his son, he would have to come down to Capernaum. There's no way that Jesus could heal him if he wasn't wasn't able to come. It never entered his mind that Jesus might be able to heal someone who was 16 miles away. You see, he had a limited view of Christ. A limited view of Christ. His second misconception was that Jesus could only be able to heal his son if they were able to return before the boy died. You see, he looked upon death as final. He reasoned that Jesus might be able to heal the boy if he were sick, but if the boy would die, then he would be on the power of Jesus to do anything about it. Once again, he had a limited view of Jesus. And there's a principle here. We often fall into the same trap, do we not? Our view of God and our view of Christ is far too limited and it's reflected in our prayer life have you ever prayed like this your father i want to ask you to solve this problem if you're able to i hope you never pray like that but maybe you have what are you saying when you pray that way you're saying that that uh, that the creator of all the universe the one who holds the galaxies together by his own power might not be able to to answer our microscopic problem. We need to learn the same lesson that this man is about to learn, and it is the lesson of the power of God. We dare not have a limited view of God. We dare not have a limited view of Jesus Christ. This man had another problem that he didn't even know about. It was the problem far greater than the sickness of his son. 
And these two misconceptions were just symptoms of something that was far greater, a far greater illness. It was the problem of his own spiritual condition. He had come seeking help for his son's condition, and he would go away having found life for his entire family. That brings us to the response of Jesus. Verse 48 through 50. Up to this point, this man had seen Jesus only as a healer, someone who could perform a miracle, someone that could succeed where the doctors had not succeeded. And he's think, his thinking is characteristic of many in Galilee. Jesus answers him accordingly. Notice, first of all, the need for faith. Verse 48. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye, ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. I want you to notice, although Jesus speaks to the man, his answer is directed to the entire crowd. He says, except ye see signs. There's an important lesson here. I want to just take some time to, to, to briefly address. And I've done it before, but maybe you haven't heard this. People say they don't like the King James Bible because of all the these and the vows. Well, the use of thee and thou is very important. And this doesn't have anything to do with the way people spoke back in 1611 when this Bible was translated. They did not use thee and thou in their everyday language. Now, sometimes we think, well, that's the way they spoke, and so that's why it was translated this way. No, the King James Bible is a very precise translation, and the translators wanted you to know who is being spoken to and who is being spoken about. The old English use of thee, thine, and thou is singular, while the words ye, you, and your are plural. Now, in the modern English, you can be either singular or plural, can it? When you read the King James by understanding thee and ye, one can immediately tell if the pronoun is singular or plural. So as you're reading your Bible and you come across the word that starts with th, thine, thy, thou, think singular. You come across the pronoun ye, you, or your, think plural. Let me give you an example. We just have, uh, uh, are not too far away from chapter 3 here. Remember, we talked about the Lord Jesus uh, being confronted by Nicodemus. And he made this statement to Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. Was he just saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Well, yes, he was, but ye is plural. You can only tell this from our King James Version. If you look at the previous verses, you can tell the Lord Jesus is speaking only to Nicodemus in verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? In verse 5, Jesus answers, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, singular, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here's the rule. Thee, thine, and thou are singular. Ye, you, and your are plural. So here in our text in chapter 4, we find in verse 48, except ye. Now who's he speaking? Who's the plural there? 
Jesus was not only rebuking the man, was asking him to heal his son, he was rebuking the Jewish people because of their superficial reasons for seeking him. They sought him for the miracles he did, but they didn't understand that they should seek him because he is their Messiah and Lord. And like people in general, this man is looking only for a miracle of Jesus. He's focusing on miracles. He does not see the one behind the miracles. He only wants his immediate problem solved. He is an unbeliever. He is spiritually dead. His son is only sick. He does not realize it, but he has a much greater need than a sick son. You say, well, that's pretty serious, isn't it, Pastor? To have a sick child? Yes, it is serious. We all know that. But there's even a greater problem, and that's to have be sick spiritually. Both he and his son needed spiritual life. And so Jesus is going to deal with the whole man. He's going to heal the son, but first he teaches the man about faith. And so we find here, secondly, a pleading request in verse 49. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. I want you to notice the man's reaction here. He rephrases the question. In verse 47, he was request, requesting Jesus to come down and heal his son. Now he pleads with Jesus to come and heal his child. Uh, I was interested in these two different terms here. Some may say, well, there's not that big of a difference there. But the difference seems to indicate that his plea becomes more passionate in his request. Child is a term con uh, containing greater emotion. But notice also that he still has not recognized the issue at hand. He still is only concerned with the physical health of his son. To him, faith is not an issue. He does not see faith as being important. He will only have faith in Jesus if he can first see a miracle. I believe this is often true in our lives. When a child whom we dearly love becomes deathly sick, we're concerned about their well-being. And yet, what about their spiritual well-being? Often we make prayer requests for people's physical needs. But we have very few requests for spiritual needs. We tend to be much more concerned about the physical needs than we are about the spiritual needs, not only of our own children, but those of other loved ones and neighbors and acquaintances that we have. And our pleading for the spiritual health should be just as great, if not greater. A pleading request. Notice an assurance of healing. Verse 50. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Now Jesus does not agree to go with the man. Instead, he responds with that statement, Thy son liveth. This is more than just a prophecy. It's a working of a miracle. As he speaks, so it is done at the very moment in Capernaum, 16 miles away. And now the man is faced with a dilemma. He believes that Jesus is able to come to Capernaum and heal his son. Will he believe that Jesus can heal from a distance? It's a test of faith. And we face the same decisions today. We are at a distance from Jesus today. Has anybody seen Jesus lately? I haven't seen him. 
He's at a distance from us. We cannot see him in our presence, although he's promised he'd never leave us nor forsake us. We know that he has promised that, but we can't see him. He's at a distance from us. We would believe that he could do all sorts of wonderful things if he were just here. If we could just see him. But will we believe that he can work in our lives even though we may not be able to immediately see the effects of that work? Jesus gives him an assurance that his son is healed. And so then we see an act of faith in verse 50 again. It says, And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. The man passed the faith test. He believed that Jesus, what Jesus said would come to pass. As a result, his belief, he acted, and he began the long trip back home. He had been had seen no supernatural sign. Not yet, anyway. He didn't see anything. There was no confirmation. They didn't have a cell phone. He couldn't text his his uh, family back home. He couldn't uh, he couldn't call them on a telephone. He couldn't send them a letter, an email. He had to wait, and to go 16 miles back in that day took a lot longer than going from here to to Minong or someplace uh, uh, that's even farther. You know, again, he believed. No confirmation. And this is much like what Jesus does with us today. We're often ready to ask for a sign from God, and when we, and then we'll be, believe. But he seldom gives us those supernatural signs. Rather, he asks us to believe, and then we will see his supernatural workings in our lives. I think it's a very profound truth. Faith precedes sight. We must believe in order to see. And so that brings us to the remarkable sign. In the conclusion of this chapter, in verses 51 through 54, Jesus is speaking to this man. Something spectacular spectacular is happening 16 miles down the road in Capernaum. The household slaves who are watching over the, uh, the sick son watch as his sickness leaves him. Some of them set out for Canaan with the glad news, and it's on the road between Canaan and Capernaum that they meet their master. And so in verse 51, it says, And he was now going down. His servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. And so there's a timely question in verse 52. Then inquired he of them the hour when he had began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Now I want you to notice the question that is phrased here. He does not ask, when was he healed? He says, when did he begin to amend? Now, that's not a word we use uh, very often. We just say, when did he get better? You know, when did he start getting better? Now, the man had just demonstrated faith, but he was still a weak faith. He needed to be strengthened. And so he gets an immediate reply. Verse 52, And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. About seven o'clock in the evening before the man had spoken to Jesus, and perhaps he had walked most of the night to get back to his, his home. But notice how these servants describe this healing. The fever left him. 
Now the word left there is very important. I said the King James Bible is a very precise translation. This is the same word when the Samaritan woman left her water pot. Remember back when uh, Jesus had uh, been talking to the, the woman at the well and she left her water pot. She just dropped everything and she ran back to town to tell him that she had met a man that told her all about herself. It's the same word. It wasn't a slow, natural recovery. It didn't take days and weeks for him to recover. It happened instantly. Instantly. The man then knew that it was the same hour when Jesus had spoken the word, Thy son liveth. As a result, the man and his entire household believed in Jesus. And so there's a response of faith, verse 53. So the father knew that it was the same hour in that which in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole household. As a result of this miracle, the faith of this man was confirmed. This is the way God often works with us. After we believed in him, then he shows us things which will confirm and solidify our faith. And that's not all. As a result of this sign, his entire household believes as well. Now, it's interesting here, there's a contrasting sign. In verse 54, it says this again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea in in Galilee. We saw the first sign. It was a sign of turning the water into wine. This is now the second sign given within the realm of Galilee. And there's an interesting contrast here again between the two. Again, the first miracle was performed in the midst of a wedding. Second one is performed in the midst of sickness and death. The first one, a miracle, was requested by the mother of Jesus. The miracle here is requested by a royal official. In the first one, Jesus changed water into wine. Here he changes sickness into health. In the first one, he demonstrated his power over the physical universe. In the second one, he demonstrates that distance is no obstacle to his, the working of his power. And in the first one, the result was that his disciples believe in him. In the second one, the result is that this nobleman and his entire household believe in him. It's a tremendous principle that we must not miss if we're going to complete our examination of this miracle. It's the principle of affliction. The principle of affliction. You see, this nobleman had never before come to Jesus. As much as an entire year of ministry had taken place up to this point, yet never once did this man take it upon himself to travel to Judea and seek Jesus out. It took a tragedy to bring him to Christ. And he's not alone. His situation is not unique. This same principle is illustrated in the Psalm. Psalm 119 and verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. You know, oftentimes, in times of trouble, people will turn to God. I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, some of the foxhole conversions that were took place during the war. And maybe someone said, as they were under the fire of of enemy fire and maybe a, a buddy is right next to him gets killed and 
A man pleads with God and says, if, if you just get me out of this, I'll live for you, God. Kind of a foxhole conversion. Is that person really saved? It could be. How do they follow through with that? Not, how is that in our lives? When we really get into deep trouble and we say, Lord, get me out of this and I'll follow you. I'll do anything for you. God gets us out of it. Where do we go? Do we follow him? When everything else fails, people will try God. And prayer is viewed often as a panic button that reads, in case of emergency, press here. It's because of this that God often brings affliction and trials. Those afflictions, those trials are not to punish you. Rather, it's for your good. It's to bring you to a place where you're totally dependent upon God. And this is the strengthening of faith. Faith begins to grow only when self-dependence has fallen. I wonder, have you ever faced uh, an affliction? Have problems confronted you that appear insurmountable? Perhaps this is God's lesson for you. He teaches us to trust through our needs. He strengthens us through our weakness. And in our dependence, He is glorified. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, And He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I just want to make two concluding applications. First, if you have believed in Christ, if you're saved this morning, then ask the Lord for the salvation of your entire household. I mean those beyond your immediate family. Many of you have relatives, children, grandchildren, uncles, aunts, and cousins, and so forth, who need the Lord. Trust God for them. Now you can't be saved for them, but you can ask the Lord for salvation of your entire household. Throughout the book of Acts, as in we see here, there's the sequence of entire households coming to saving faith. We find it in Acts 11, Acts 16. May not happen instantly with your family as it does in some of these cases, but if the Lord has done wonders in saving your soul, pray for your family. Live a gospel-transformed life in front of them every day. Let them see the love of Christ in you. Ask the Lord to save your family from their sins. And secondly, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you're under a sentence of death. You're under a sentence of eternal separation from the Lord. But just as Christ instantly instantly granted life to this dying boy, he can instantly give you eternal life if you'll call upon his name. You cannot do anything, you cannot do anything to save yourself, but Christ can and will save you if you cry out in faith to him. This sign was written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. As we find the purpose of John's writing in chapter 20 and verse 31. Let's pray. Father in heaven.